You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Hallie. Today, we're, di- we're welcoming Kira Simone to discuss her book, Palace of Rebel, and Emily Russo to discuss her book, Confetti. Before I introduce them to you, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books is open from 10 to 10 every day in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, and we ship nationwide from skylightbooks.com. Kira Simone is a Tunisian-American writer from Los Angeles, now based in Brooklyn. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in a variety of literary journals, including The Baffler, The Brooklyn Rail, Bomb, Conjunctions, The Denver Quarterly, The Anthology of Best American Experimental Writing, and elsewhere. The recent winner of the inaugural ILS Fence Magazine Fiction Contest, Simone is a member of the publishing collective Ugly Duckling Press and part of a two-woman team running the editorial office of Zone Books. Her debut story collection, Palace of Rebel, is out now from Tenement Press, and she is at work on a novel. Emily Russo is a writer, editor, and bookseller living at the Jersey Shore. Her books of poetry are G, Wave Archive, and Confetti. Recent poems and essays on film and visual art have appeared in Art Forum, American Tordada, Bomb, The Brooklyn Rail, Compact, Granta, Gulf Coast, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She edits the multidisciplinary journal Asphalt Magazine and blogs on Substack. Currently, she is at work on a series of books on cinema, mysticism, and spectatorship. The first, Confetti, is out from Hyperidean Press, and the second, Magenta, is forthcoming from Hiding Press in 2023. Welcome, Kira and Emily. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks. Thanks, Hallie. We are going to start with readings by both writers. Um, so, yeah, let's let's kick it off. Okay. Hi. Thanks. Thanks for that intro. Um, so I'm Emily, uh, and my book Confetti uh, is sort of a range in a few sections and I'm gonna read from the first section which is called light. Um, And I'll start with uh, two poems, both kind of California-y. In Hollywood, at the start of fire season, I yelled into the eye of a suspended possum to X out a madness beheld deficient rain, cherry vanilla seltzer fizzing, faux snow seeming to dive at the grove in illumined flurries, like the hair of an animal technically feral. Unquantifiable Venice beach trash inflates near a couple stabbing French toast, hotel water fountaining over a man selling four pairs of dress shoes on a keyboard, spider balancing on palm frond, slants away from light as cement white of this building mutes, small dog gallops into fat droplets of rain for three minutes. in Hollywood. He loses his job at Sunglass Hut. 
seven wide brimmed hats and two plants for sale. Playing the keyboard to velour swivel chairs, blood clomping metallic through a vein. She broke down and let me in playing at the cafe. Strangers encircle me and they sing and sing until a maniacal laughter about which there's something French and familiarly lit. And I run to the sea and a stranger remains with me and all across the nation, such a strange vibration, quick synaptic vigor, prayers for the dead, Californian liturgical glance. I'm accidentally smiling at him, so I do it again, I'm smiling at him, so I do it more, but I have to go to get set up with the spirit in the sky, strange vibration of the stranger in my throat, urging now to consume more light or whatever will desiccate. Where the sky makes dots of paper, the moth's antenna stirs vanishing metal, linoleum floor flecked purple, orange, white, enter a rhythm whose center partially digests light. Thanks, Emily. Um, and now we'll hear a little bit uh, from Kira from Palace of Rebel. Hey guys. Um, I just realized that my, I was on mute when you said hello before um, because there was a truck going by um, because I live in New York and I'm actually going to read a piece that's a little more New York oriented. Um, I So Palace of Rebel is a book of what I'm calling stories, um, but they're each around one to two pages long um, and could easily be thought of as prose poems or flash fiction. Uh, they sort of straddle the line between the two. Um, and I think the only thing you need to know is that they each, each piece is composed primarily of single words that are extracted from the newspaper. Um, so they're sort of built from the shards of the daily news. Um, and this first piece I'm going to read um, is called Dear Pauline. She sits on a metal folding chair on the roof, smoking in her slip. A magnificent creature with short black hair slicked back away from her face and a pair of neat pearls nestled in her earlobes. An old television flickers on a crooked patch of the roof plugged into a long cord cast out from an open window. The woman watches it as she smokes, reading the title cards that appear between the images, sensational white lettering against the black background of a silent picture. Earlier in the day, she sat by the window, gazing out at the backsides of the surrounding buildings, a jungle of wrecked yards scattered with brick. She watched the rainfall on a white mattress abandoned in a parking lot, there for weeks, along with a pair of shoes thrown out on the asphalt and the kids dangling from the fire escapes, using them as basketball hoops. Tart-tongued and handsome, she has been answering letters all afternoon, trying to escape the weepy Victorian past by advising lonely hearts to leave their rooms, housewives to abandon their cards at the table. Her own husband wrote a letter to the paper once himself, telling of how she eats breakfast naked and cooks naked and routinely falls asleep early in the evening, still in the buff. He often stays up late, catching sight of strange things that only happen at this hour, 
like the men digging in the yard in the middle of the night. She can hear him typing away as she falls asleep, both of them just silhouettes to each other on either side of the curtain hanging between the adjoining rooms. But tonight, she has kept herself up to see the eclipse, a rare blood moon that is said to rise at midnight, casting a dim red light over the city. She hasn't been on the roof in months, not since her 30th birthday, when she stood with a crown of white roses wilting from her head as cockroaches ran across the tarred ridges. It was only November then, and as they raised their glasses, the first snow began to fall, a gentle flurry that felt fine against their skin. It has been a long winter, followed by a dark spring. Hungry rats have gnawed at the bark of trees. House plants have frozen in blocks of ice. The cold days have been spent conversing with the paintings along the hall, pictures of marauders waiting in the dark to have their way with her. A century ago, no one had ever seen a moon like this. But now, as the tables are set with unleavened bread, the doors marked with simulated lamb's blood, it appears in the sky, burnt orange red, sliding into the earth's shadow and shining with the light of every sunrise and sunset that has occurred across the planet through the day. Off the coast of an Eastern country, a boat full of school children disappears into the sea. A plane goes missing in the Australian ocean. A hot air balloon goes down in flames just after it takes off. The people on the roof remove their cloaks and begin to dance. The man having emerged from the window that leads back into the apartment, looking up at the light bleeding from the edges of the moon. In the middle of Metropolis, there is a strange house overlooked by the centuries, say the words across the screen. When the color is gone from the sky, what is left appears black. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to start, well, first I have a new standard for poems, which is now if the grove doesn't come into a poem, I don't want to hear it. So, um, <laughs> thanks Emily. Um, <laughs> um, I would love for us to start if for y'all to just, um, tell us a little bit about your books. They're both, um, a bit experimental in form, um, and have images and I'd just like to hear, uh, yeah, or for our listeners to know what we're getting into. Um, well, Confetti is uh, a book of poems, I guess, you know, in a sense, there's like straight up poems in here, um, but it's also arranged into seven sections that are sort of loosely ha like have a they each have a sort of environment of their own and they're all kind of dealing with uh the sort of creation of images and the process of looking at images specifically moving images like um movies but also the sun and the moon and things like that um and and uh the the section that i read from the first section called light uh the like sort of themes running through there are sort of having to do with um strange like eerie kinds of light and and uh 
the way that light plays on environments so, and the, the movie the texas chainsaw massacre is like a major uh theme running through that first section so there's like some leather face references and in addition to that there's also running through the the uh, I almost said running through the film running through the book uh these well I guess what I call diagrams which are um kind of drawings ish of uh various paused moments in movies and there are like many different ones so they sort of get uh dispersed throughout uh throughout the book my friend had a good description of it he said something like like they sort of float to the top as as like a filminess on top of like a liquid or something which i like because there's also some like grossness and like some like grotesqueness in, in the book as well hopefully that answers so i explained a little bit about it uh, right before i read that piece um but uh, so Palace of Rebels, a collection of stories that started a long time ago. Um, it was initially inspired by a photograph on the cover of a newspaper, the New York Times, which I found on a table unopened. Um, and it was, a, it was an image of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces that had de been demolished during the fall of Baghdad in 2003. Um, and at the time I was taking a class on recent innovative fiction and was learning about um, writing under constraints um, and the, Ulip the Ulipo group, which is a lot of people know about, but if you don't, it's um, a group of writers and mathematicians that was founded in the 1960s. Um, and they would try to create texts that had some sort of mathematical formula behind them. Um, and so I was, I was learning about that. I was reading a lot of Ulipian work and um, seeing this image and coming across this newspaper by chance, I had this idea to, what if I tried to create a story just using the words that were on the front cover of this, this newspaper. Um, and so that, and, and beneath that, that image, it said Palace of Rubble. That was the, the caption to the photograph. Um, and so that's where the first story in the title, there's a title story in the book called Palace of Rubble, and that's where that first started. And then I kind of took off running with the idea and over years continued to write these pieces um, using that constraint. Um, so that's sort of where it started, and then it kind of evolved from there. Um, and I definitely, um, I was more strict in the beginning about using the constraint and then it sort of um, expands and you know there's definitely a little bit of cheating here and there um, and uh, thematically I would say the the book sort of describes a post-apocalyptic world that's kind of a parallel universe to the one we're in right now uh, apparently um, and you know so it takes it takes fragments of, of what's going on in current events and it restructures them into something totally different. Um, it, it at times is sort of fabulous and surreal. Um, there's also imagery, um, there's photographs by the photographer John Devola who um, 
who came to the project later. So the images weren't originally in this book. Um, but when I went to, when I started working with the publisher to turn this into an actual book, um, it was actually his idea. He had worked with John DeVola before and he, he, it was his idea to include images. Um, although I had always thought that this book would work well with images. I, I had originally thought of um, collage of some kind, maybe being something that would pair well since the, the texts themselves are almost like collages. Um, but John Devola's work ended up being, I feel the perfect thing to pair it with. Um, it, the images in this book draw from a series he, he did called Vandalism. Um, and they're all images of these vacant buildings along the California coast that he sort of infiltrated and would manipulate really subtly, like um, throwing a plastic bag up in the air and photographing that within the space or taking a spray paint and writing a single word on a wall or just very small things. Um, and, they're, and they're photographs from the seventies. Um, so they've been around for a while, but um, being from California and having spent a lot of time in derelict spaces and sort of making palaces out of them, um, I felt like it really connected to the work. Um, and that's sort of one of the themes of the book is this finding beauty in the ruins, sort of. Um, so I'll stop there for now. I didn't realize the pictures were from the 70s, which makes, which adds another layer of like decay and time path or like over time. Um, and, you know, decay and grossness are both something that you explore in your books. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you're drawn to, to that? <laughs> <laughs> why are you drawn to decay and grossness? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, I think, yeah, they are sort of present in both of our books. I mean, for just to kind of like go off of what Kira was just saying, um, my, there's a lot of, uh, in Confetti, a lot of like sort of changing, deal, it sort of deals with the changing relationships to screens and the kind of slow uh way the screen sort of seems to encompass everything now um so a lot of there are like moments when the the speaker or the you in in the text like seems to sort of merge with the screen in a sense um but also there's like along with that and i guess and i guess another like side note connection between our books would be that um the 70s you know is like running through mine as well and i think that this is also um like something about the sort of switch in America from industrial to financial capitalism and like this sort of like image of something like a steel mill which which occurs throughout throughout confetti um kind of becoming something derelict and then uh a, the kind of like displacement or airiness or um dispersion that comes like in a kind of post-industrial landscape if that makes sense. So I think there's, I think that's, that's sort of why I was drawn to it. I mean, I grew up in a town that is very much like kind of post industry and, and in the shadow of, of various mills. Um, so they were just sort of around. Um, and so like the, the sort of idea of confetti 
becomes almost like an extended metaphor for I don't know you know like what what fall what, what can like sort of fly high in a sense but also like land everywhere so it gets very high and it gets very low and it doesn't like discriminate you know like there's a lot of gross stuff on the ground <laughs> um so it sort of becomes this like material that gets places that you may or may not want to look um so I don't know if mine's like trying to find beauty necessarily in the in the decay like like you said yours is doing Kira which is really cool my um I think mine's something something like something like about some, something more about like the kind of violence of of this sort of change you know or and and um the sort of like freedom of like feeling kind of uprooted and like dispersed and also the sort of like terror that comes with that yeah and if you you know if you walk into a, a room and there's confetti on the ground but no people you know that there was a party that is over um as a kind of after the party yeah vibe. it's like quite a literal um passage of time marker so that's really yeah thanks and like they this is like this is like neither here nor there maybe but they used to use like plums and fruit as like confetti you know and so like the paper that we use now is kind of like this uh you know more disposable or something um lighter offshoot of that. wow I didn't know that that the smell would be um a lot different <laughs> with the rotting plums on the ground <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> also getting like pummeled with fruit mm -hmm. or something yeah it's a bit, bit odd it would be a different vibe at kids' birthday parties, for sure. Um, I guess I'll just say I, most of my most of the stories in my book are in Palace of Rebel are um, about something that's falling apart. Um, so I guess it, it's decay in that sense, but but trying to find a way to live with within it, um, and it also sort of looks at the myth of America as a utopia of sorts um, and um, yeah, you know, pulls from concrete things that are being reported um, and tries to sort of see between the lines and pull out what's between the cracks, um, you know, and uh, I don't know that I set out with like a fascination with decay um, but I feel like we're living in a world that's in decay um, in more ways than one, not just environmentally, um, but pedagogically kind of. Um, and so I was just sort of engaging with, with that reality. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. But. <laughs> I think also like for both of our books, a word that comes to mind, or I don't know, I don't want to like speak for your book here, but like when I read, when I read your book, this kind of comes to mind too. And I think I was thinking about this word, um, decadence, which like means decay or like refers to a fall or a decay. And so I think a lot of what I see in, in both of the sort of another overlap in both of our books is like this, like decoration or weird, like, um, floridness from something fucked up or broken 
whether or not that's beautiful like there's readers shall decide but there's a Marie Antoinette vibe I think to both of them in weird ways of like I don't know I have a story where there's like a bunch I have a bunch of story where there's a bunch of people like dancing at the top of a tower that's actually sinking into the ground um you know and I think the confetti aspect of celebration and party but being made of trash uh, or turning to trash on the ground um sort of speaks to to that as well um yeah mm-hmm. yeah I mean also this um this notion that like a celebration or a festival or or a true party is always like very close to the graveyard or something you know like there's always this kind of excess that and a risk that could potentially tip over into a, like a, a too muchness and there, so there's a bit of danger there as well mm-hmm. yeah everything feels very um very tedious kind of like about to tip over the edge into um something horrifying even though it appears to be a celebration <laughs> um, without even getting into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about the language um, and the rhythm in each of your books. Kira, yours is told in what feels, reads to me like kind of short bursts of um, images and ideas. And Emily, you're... Um, book slips in and out of poems and kind of has this beautiful formlessness um, within its structure that I find uh, incredibly wonderful. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you think about your own um, use of language and maybe even what your writing process is like. Or, Well, I sort of described my process a little bit um, but yeah, I would I would say that um, this is Kira, by the way, speaking right now. Um, but uh, I would say that you know these are short, very short stories that um, there's in single blocks of prose, so there's not like a lot of room to take a breath or come up for air, um, and they're quite densely packed with a lot of information. Um, so a lot happens in a single sentence. Um, and you know, it's prose. It's I, I I would more technically call it fiction, I guess. Um, but it veers between being narrative and abstract, um, which can be an interesting process to move through as a reader, um, because you're sort of, um, you know, not always sure where you're going to land exactly. Um, but which is why, which is why I felt like they needed to be really short, um, because they're, they're quite, um, lyrical and full of a lot of imagery and, um, in the way that the news can feel really dense too. Um, but this is sort of much more colorful language than you would be reading in, you know, a journalistic text. Um, So yeah, and in a lot of ways, the language is dictated for me by the words that I was using that I had to work with. Um, 
So it was an interesting experiment for sure. I, you know, confetti kind of, yes, slips um, into prose. There are like prose blocks and then they're also like kind of quite small and dispersed discrete little poems as well. Um, so I guess that, you know, I let the sort of materials that I I'm talking about in the book dictate a lot of the language and the form. So things that are kind of very disposable and um, edible, <laughs> like honey and sugar and uh, weird like cakes and stuff. And then um, also like bodily fluids <laughs> um, and then also very high things like light um, from the sun and the screen, et cetera. So they sort of um, come apart and uh, congeal in, in ways. Uh, and what the hell am I talking about? Yeah, oh, and the rhythm kind of flows from there. And then a huge dictator of, <laughs> so we just use the word dictator actually when talking about a book of poems, but <laughs> something that dictated um, the, form and rhythm and language of the book was the sort of events of sunrise and sunset, which I'm sort of thinking of as the original beginning and ending. And so there's a kind of refrain that happens throughout the book about uh, sunset and sunrise. So it, the book kind of keeps coming back to sunrise and sunset um, and kind of looking for beginnings and ends, like, like firm points of rest or, or starting um, and is sometimes able to find them and sometimes kind of slips away. Uh, Wonderful, thank you. Um, what were, I'm gonna ask one more question and then I think we'll do another short reading um, from each book. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your influences and other works that um, you might see as in conversation with your books or um, what you were reading when you were writing these. Um, yeah, just kind of what books are around. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I mentioned Ulipo as being one of the influences. Um, so Raymond Cano is definitely his book Exercises in Style, which essentially tells the same, same story over and over again, um, but in different ways. Um, so it takes the same like simple action of an encounter on a bus and retells it a million different ways. Um, so that was one book that was influential. Um, I also, the, the work of Renee Gladman um, and Ann Carson, who both sort of, um, you know, Ann Carson has her, that book, Autobiography of Red, which is like a, a novel in verse. Um, so writers who have a way of telling a narrative, but doing it in an unusual way, using, using a different form that's almost more like poetry. Um, Renee Gladbin also does things like that. Um, again, sort of writers who deal with both narrative and the abstract. Um, Italo Calvino is, is always, has one of my favorite authors and has always been influential on on lots of different things I've written um, but I think the sort of fabulous more vivid imagery um, was definitely in conversation with some of his work um, and then just 
things like, I mean, I mentioned this in my acknowledgements a bit, um, but, you know, things like Picasso's Blue Period, where he did a whole body of work where there were paintings that were only using the color blue. Um, so, you know, I looked at a lot of things that dealt with constraint in some, in some way. Um, but, you know, again, that's just, that's just the process of writing um, where, you know, I think that, for instance, when you go to a museum and you see a painting on the wall or a sculpture, whatever it is, um, there's usually like a plaque that explains it. And there's people who look at the plaque before they look at the piece of art. Um, but I've always felt like it needs to work without the plaque. Um, so, you know, yes, this book is a lot about the, the constraint and the process behind it. Um, but you can read the stories without knowing any of that, you know, and there's still something to engage with, um, or at least, or at least I hope there is. Um, so those were some, that was some of my thinking and and some of the work that I was looking at and thinking about as I was as I was writing this. So, yeah, I I hope mine can work without the plaque too. That's the dream. <laughs> um, I, you know, a lot of my influences are sort of actually directly mentioned in the book, which I tend to do in my work. I like name people and books and stuff but um the the movies that i'm writing about and with uh which get mentioned at the end and sometimes you can kind of tell um it, but but again it's like not important that that you know what what movie i'm sort of diagramming or talking about um tend to be either horror movies so like texas chainsaw massacre um hellraiser 2 <laughs> is in there um, or like experimental films like Marguerite Duras uh, movies and um, like Antonioni's Zabriskie Point, which is that like wild um, movie set in the desert that like everyone hated, but now people seem to like again or something in, in, um, from 1970. Um, and that, that movie actually, I think originally gave me uh, like the sort of idea for confetti because there's this like very tripped out scene at the end where a mansion in the desert explodes and you see like all of these uh products um like wonder bread and um refrigerators uh you know daily life stuff and and products um explode and they look like confetti um and then also there are like movies that sort of combine those two things like experimental stuff and and the horror genre so like trouble every day which is like that can that kind of artsy cannibal movie is is in here and also uh bruno dumont's 29 palms which is another kind of violent and also boring and interesting um desert movie uh so those those were like threaded throughout and were hugely influential and i tend to also like write with stuff on like this, like like movies on and stuff, uh, but then also I would say the people I mentioned throughout the book were the main influences. So like Simone Weil, um, George Bataille, uh, who else is mentioned? Um, those are like the two main kind of spirits that haunt the book. And then also like 
um, there's a bit of uh, what uh, Namjoon Pike's uh, piece, The Moon is the Oldest TV, I was thinking of a lot and I mentioned in the book. Um, so this idea of, of like planets or stars is like the sort of moving images before before movies. Um, and in terms of like living people, I, I feel like there there's some influence or some kind of uh, vibe similarity between this book and like something like uh, Cynthia Cruz's poems. Uh, and also there's like an alchemical element. So maybe like Ariana Rines's Mercury is there's a little bit of that in there. Cool. That's my attempt at answering the very good question you asked. You did a good job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'd love to hear just another uh, snippet from each book before we say goodbye. Um, we didn't discuss the order of this. So whoever, uh, Emily, do you want to start? Or Kira, do you want to start? It doesn't. <laughs> okay, so this is another one of my very short stories. It's called Today Clouds. Like other places, there are areas of fog and sometimes a little turmoil in the market. The buildings are old. Doors creak on their hinges. Accidents happen in the spring. Kings break their hips while elephant hunting as fortunes spin from the wheels of young maidens. In the afternoon, two children play outside an abandoned house. Their dolls long decapitated. They arrange pieces of trash on the sidewalk, constructing their own tiny world on the ground. Its territories already mapped out by the fading chalk outlines of missing people. Here, a blank square of sidewalk becomes an open field an empty pastry bag, a great white mansion. All is in miniature, inanimate specks fading into a voluminous backdrop of orange sky. The children drag sticks along the pavement as if marching drones through the little town they've imagined past the monuments of discarded bottles and shards of glass. They control everything down to the weather, pouring water over the town for days of flooding tilting magnifying glasses over rooftops to zap out unworthy citizens. Still in all, it has been a day for rookies, a day for running amok. Just off a main highway that stretches east of them and slices through a moonscape of craggy slopes, teenagers play with guns in the idle mountains, dropouts fulfilling a century-old dream of taking to the hills. Many of them live in the trailers dotting the hillside where they spend their nights studying video game ninjas. Inside the abandoned house, a substitute teacher tries to adjust to daylight saving time. His kitchen is full of substitute ingredients, honey instead of sugar, water instead of milk, a single plank of wood where the bed should be, made for a man in place of another. He scrawls out a lesson plan for his next day of work in which the few students he has left will be asked to contemplate one question. Where does inspiration originate? The substitute looks up at the tiny cracks of light flickering like stars through the boards nailed over the windows. 
He remembers staring into a lamp store in Chinatown once, a gallery of lights all blinking in dissonant rays of color. But here, there is nothing but scrub brush for miles into the distance, as if some enterprising tycoon has made off with the rest. The weather vane on the roof turns slowly on chicken feet as he peers through that same point of light in the window, thoughts shattered by the dropout boys shooting their guns into the air. A gust of wind blows a fleet of plastic bags past the house. Today, clouds, says one of the children outside, cueing the orchestra for the next great calamity. Thank you. I love that one. Thanks. Um, I'm gonna read two poems, both called Honey and Tea. And there was honey in your reading, I believe. There was, there was a little honey, I thought of you. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of honey and other sticky materials and confetti. Um, so, and this is also from the first section um, called Light. Honey and tea, no souvenir in France, California, Texas, or Pennsylvania, ground emptied, honey and tea, orange and pink Dunkin' Donuts sign falling fast with the sun alongside the simple exacting charm of a chest of drawers, I be triviality of travel of honey and tea northern city calling a gaze thither before disintegrating if you only I walk to the top of the hill while you sleep, honey and tea. Name the ambient violence that doesn't cut but makes a lozenge of what's in its air. Quiet fervency of a mouth, honey and tea, echo swoop mouthing, slid the northern lights and the sun echo. We two creatures in the bodega near the end. Do you see the horizon twinned in here's grayer air, Simone or Saturn? bottom of an atmosphere, abnegation, honey and tea unmusically, stirring spoon, scraping mug along the edges of a winter, almost dissolved, born. Honey and tea. Look what the body can do. Look what she does and be quiet. Then wrap her in gauze and send her finished idling to the place of rest where the world won't get eaten. There is only one fault, writes Simone Bay, incapacity to feed upon light, to mistake hunger for beauty, but neither is distance, feed upon light and other goodnesses shoot through. Sidewalk eats dirty confetti, New Year's Day 2020, if smooth clumps of me come apart in hot water, easy honey and tea I lose. The setting sun is beautiful because of loss, according to Antonin Artaud, to identify with the disintegration, to eat what's lit up, to abstain, to use the wide white screen as a frame, a container in which, to find romance and static, to decline gracefully, to stir a virtue, metallic and gelatinous. In Iceland, the ground was frost shriveled, textures left and entered the landscape unholily. Where did the century go? slid below a horizon again and again, then rose anaphora into bodies. Communion wafers dissolve on tongues as I cross myself as I eye someone a few pews over on an evening in the years between Iceland's. Keeping rigorously to the point is a way to lie, to hear him shift his weight in a chair somewhere 
honey and tea, mumming and iteration of love repeated to excision, bliss, horizon, bye. Thank you so much. <clears throat> thank you so much. There we go. <laughs> um, uh, thank you both for sharing your work with us today. Um, today's guests, once again, were Emily Russo, author of Confetti, and Kira Simone, author of Palace of Rubble. Both are out now, and you can order both books at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.